Axis Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. It's brought to you by America's beverage companies. I'm Dan Primack. On today's show, America's uncarrier gets a new boss and the legal fight over California's new rules on board diversity. But first, when the biggest isn't big enough. So for several years now, global financial and energy markets have been waiting for Saudi Arabia to take its state oil company called Aramco public. The idea was that it would be the largest IPO of all time, with Saudi Crown Prince Ben Salman talking about selling around 5% of the business at an eye-popping $2 trillion valuation. That means the IPO could have raised around $100 billion, or more than four times larger than what was raised by the current record holder, Alibaba. But then there was delay after delay after delay, and finally, about a month or so ago, it looked like this thing was starting, and when the Saudis published preliminary pricing terms over the weekend, it showed that while it would still probably be bigger than anything that's come before, it won't be by nearly so much. The current plan is to sell just around 1.5% of Aramco, at a valuation of between $1.6 and $1.7 trillion. Moreover, the Saudis will make this almost entirely a local affair, canceling investor presentations in Europe, Japan, and North America. And just to strengthen the in-country demand a bit, the Saudi Central Bank has relaxed lending limits. Now, for global financial markets, the value drop is possibly a big warning sign, with many wondering if it means Aramco is actually much weaker than they realized. For energy markets, there are some concerns that this event is the actual manifestation of peak oil. And for Saudi Arabia, a smaller capital infusion, bringing in less money via the IPO, could make it harder for the crown prince to achieve his vaunted Vision 2030 plan to diversify the kingdom's economy. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Axios Energy reporter Ben Geeman. But first, this. ProRata is presented by America's Beverage Companies. Our plastic bottles are 100% recyclable, including the caps. We're working together to reduce our industry's plastic footprint with a new initiative called Every Bottle Back. Because the more bottles we remake, the less new plastic we use. Learn more at everybottleback.org. We're joined now by Axios Energy reporter Ben Geeman. Over the weekend, you see the kind of formalization of these scaled back ambitions for the Saudi Aramco IPO, and your initial reaction is what? Hey, Dan. Yeah, this has really been the incredible shrinking IPO. And look, a lot of this was kind of visible in advance, right? As you mentioned at the top of the show, there's been fits and starts around this IPO. And ever since Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, floated this $2 trillion valuation, a lot of people have looked askance at that, right? You know, you know, no one ever really thought that they were going to get all the way there. Or at least it was seen as quite unlikely. And now, of course, we have confirmation of that. And I think there's a few things going on here. Look, Aramco, in a lot of ways, is, of course, an incredibly attractive company, to say the least. It is the world's largest oil producing company pumps about 10% of the world's daily crude supply. So that sounds good. Okay, but there's some problems here. One is that there's some big geopolitical risks around this company. And that was certainly something laid bare when we had those major aerial strikes back in September that the rocket attacks, yeah, exactly. That knocked a lot of the production offline. It covered fairly quickly, but it was still, I think, a very kind of stark reminder about some of the vulnerabilities there. But I think there's a lot more going on too. The way that Aramco is positioning itself in a kind of peak oil demand world is really sort of fascinating here. And there's sort of two stories you could tell about Aramco. One looks really good for them. One looks not so good for them. Let's break into that. What's the good story? What's the pro Aramco argument? The one that if you were to buy into the IPO, it might actually be worth more than 1.7 trillion on day two or day 20 or day 200. So I think the pro argument on Aramco is that in a post peak demand 
world, they're the last man standing. So let's break that down for a second. Their huge prospectus ran about 650-odd pages, included some analysis from a prominent industry-side consultancy that said, look, oil demand could peak as soon as the late 2020s could happen and, you know, could flatten out in the mid-2030s. But Aramco says, look, in that world, when the total market is flat or shrinking, we're in great shape because there have been a lot of studies that show that their per barrel crude emissions are low compared to other major producers because it's basically, you know, candidly easier to get their oil out of the ground than a lot of other places. And so their analysis actually says, look, even if oil demand is flat or shrinking, our production will keep going up and up and up because we have the lowest cost or very low cost per barrel to produce. And in a carbon constrained world, we're well positioned to kind of navigate some of those constraints. So basically the idea being our net production might actually, in theory, in 20, 30 years, go down, but our market share would go up. No, they're saying both. They're saying that the market both. share would go up and that their net production would go up through essentially mid-century at least. They're essentially saying, hey, in a shrinking market, we're going to pump more because we're the most attractive from a price standpoint and from a climate standpoint. So, okay, so give me the bear case. What's the counter argument to that? What, what's the argument for why already 1.6, 1.7 trillion is on its face already too high? There's a few reasons. One is the geopolitical risk we were just talking about, the security risk. Two is that, look, if the world gets really, really serious on climate change, if we start to see aggressive policies worldwide in order to not kind of cook the planet and in order to really bring about some really steep emissions cuts, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any oil major that's going to look great in a world in which we're really, really, really bringing down emissions. Now, no, uh, the world is not on that path at all. Emissions are still going up. But in a theoretical world that gets quite serious on climate change, I think any big producers are going to have some problems there. And I think another thing that's aside from the risks and aside from the uh, climate and demand issues, I think there's another thing that's probably giving investors pause here. And that's essentially transparency. I mean, look, even if they do this IPO and it looks like they're going to do the, you know, this small slice of it on the domestic exchange, this company is an arm of the Saudi government, full stop. Okay, And so even though, yes, they would have some incentive to keep paying out dividends. At the end of the day, it's the Saudi government that controls the company. And it's hard to get really a detailed look inside this company. I mean, sure, they've published a lot more information than they ever have before with the release of this prospectus and some other documents. But that said, there's a reason why plans to do a big international listing after this domestic listing, no one's really talking about that anymore. So you think that's because of transparency or because the Saudis truly want to control it? You know, they, you talked about the dividends. There is an argument to be made that by completely controlling it, they can control dividends, not necessarily either stopping them or or just buying back enough of their own shares that they're basically paying themselves. I think that's part of it. I think a lot of it, though, is that when you list on some exchanges in other countries, particularly the U.S. and perhaps London and elsewhere, there are some transparency requirements that are well beyond what's required by the Saudis' own domestic exchange. So while, you know, like I said, while they have sort of opened their books much more than ever before, I think the kind of securities regulations in a lot of countries that has the world's largest exchanges are starting to look like a bit of a, perhaps a bridge too far for some of the Saudi officials. Last week, there was this um, in Brazil, they were doing a big auction of offshore oil assets. It didn't go well. Do we tie what happened in Brazil to what's happening in Saudi Arabia just in, from kind of demand and the valuation standpoint? I think in the very broadest sense of the term, yes. I mean, you know, certainly when oil companies decide to bid or not bid on a given country's reserves and the potential to develop them, there's going to be a lot of kind of domestic local factors at play, certain how the contracts would be structured and so forth. But that said, when you've got a lot of the world's biggest companies having some pause about what are really 
gigantic deposits off the coast of Brazil, I think that is a time to say, hmm, what is the kind of long-term future of this uh, of this industry, and or at least of this of this resource? And that brings us right back to that question of, are the Saudis the best position to kind of navigate a post-peak demand world? And, you know, like we were talking about before, their argument so far is yes. For those of us in the United States who say aren't going to buy or not buy the IPO, that's not kind of part of our personal financial thinking. Why should the U.S. care what happens to this offering, good or bad? Well, I think one reason to look at it is because, as we've been talking about, it is kind of a um, perhaps a canary in the coal mine for what some of the world's largest money managers, uh, although it's been scaled back, think of the long-term future of the resource. And also, Aramco and Saudi Arabia is just incredibly important to world oil markets. I mean, look, we've had the U.S. boom, and the U.S. is now the largest crude oil producer in the world, but we're still going to remain, and you know, probably always will, quite tethered to global markets. And when there is a big interruption in Saudi oil supply, or when there are big sort of concerns about the long-term future of that supply, markets really respond. It doesn't matter how much the U.S. produce. Aramco will always remain an incredibly important company. Thanks to Ben Geeman, who is the author of the daily Axios Generate newsletter, which covers the energy markets. You can get it at signup.axios.com. My final two, right after this. ProRata is presented by America's Beverage Companies. Not all plastic is the same. Our 100% recyclable plastic bottles and caps are made to be remade. And we want every bottle back so that our bottles can become new bottles and not end up in oceans, rivers, and beaches. That's why we're working together to reduce our industry's plastic footprint with a new initiative called Every Bottle Back. Because the more bottles we remake, the less new plastic we use. Learn more at everybottleback.org. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is T-Mobile US, which announced this morning that CEO John Legere will step down next May to be succeeded by President and COO Mike Sievert. Three things to know. First, Legere had been widely expected to step down once T-Mobile's acquisition of Sprint finished. But there had been some questions as to if his plans had changed because the deal has hit numerous snags, including pending lawsuits by 10 states' attorneys general. Two, Sievert was always viewed as the successor, so this is not a surprise. And three, the timing. The next May part means Legere will not become CEO of WeWork, an idea that had gained some media traction last week. Instead, he becomes the tech world's most eligible CEO candidate. And finally this morning, California is being sued over a new law that would require all public companies headquartered there to have at least one female board member by the end of this year. The idea is to improve gender diversity on corporate boards and would slap a $100,000 penalty on any companies that don't comply. Now, the lawsuits basically call the rule unconstitutional, uh, referring in one case to the U.S. Constitution, uh, another lawsuit to the California Constitution, but both could be tentatively resolved pretty quickly, both because of that December 31st deadline and how the law becomes even stricter 12 months later, mandating that public companies with five people boards must have at least two women on them and boards of six or more must have three women. Why it matters beyond the corporate liberty versus gender discrimination debate is that several other states are thinking about similar laws, but are unlikely to move forward until California's courts rule. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Jesse Lee, a big happy 91st birthday to Mickey Mouse. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata podcast.